Hi, and thank you for joining me for Life with Jerry Williams. I'm Jerry. Before we get rolling, let me ask you a favor. Would you please subscribe to the podcast wherever you happen to be listening? Unless, of course, you're listening on thejoyfm.com, the radio station website. You can't subscribe there. But if you're listening there, there are links to the other places where you can subscribe, like Apple Podcasts and Google Play and Stitcher and Spotify and Anchor and and a whole lot more. If you do that, that'd be great. Give the podcast a five-star rating or review. That will help other people find the podcast as well. You know, with everything that's going on in the world today, here lately, the last few months with the coronavirus, COVID-19, and all the different feelings that that brings up, the anxiety and the fear, there's a lot of fear. And that's kind of what we're going to be focusing on with this episode of Life with Jerry Williams. And we're going to get started in just a minute. There is a good deal of fear and anxiety and unknown surrounding the world today with this COVID-19 or coronavirus. So in this episode, I'd like to take a look at two different passages, one from the Old Testament and the other from the New Testament. On first glance, these two passages may seem to be totally unrelated But as we get further along, I hope we'll discover a common thread, one that is especially relevant, given all that's going on around the world today. Though it was just as relevant before that, and and it will be again once this pandemic has faded into memory. The first passage is from 2 Kings chapter 6, beginning with verse 11. The heart of the king of Aram was enraged over this thing, and he called his servants and said to them, Will you tell me which of us is for the king of Israel? One of his servants said, No, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. So he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and take him. And it was told him, saying, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. Now, when the attendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So Elisha answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Now, the second passage is from Matthew chapter 14, beginning with verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray, and it was evening. He was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, 
he became frightened, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me! Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind stopped, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. Both of these passages contain the same line. Do not be afraid or do not fear. In verse 16 of the first passage, Elisha says it to his servant. And in verse 27 of the second passage, Jesus says it to the disciples. Now, fear is a tricky thing. It's kind of big business. How many of us have paid to be frightened? Have you ever ridden a roller coaster? As you climb that first hill, the anticipation and excitement build, and then you plummet down that first drop? Amusement parks build bigger, faster, taller roller coasters every year in an effort to scare us and to get us to fork over more and more money for the privilege. Have you ever paid to go to a horror movie? Now, I am a big horror film fan, and I regularly watch them. Now, I remember the first time I got really frightened by a scary movie. It was on TV back in the 60s. Vincent Price's The House on Haunted Hill. I was watching it alone, and one scene had a spooky-looking woman floating through a hallway. Creeped me out so much, I turned off the TV and went outside to play. Then there was the time my younger brother Mike and I went to see another Vincent Price movie at our local theater. We were maybe 10 and 8. We walked to the theater on our own back in the day when such an activity for preteen boys was not a source of fear. It was one of Price's many films based on an Edgar Allan Poe story. But it was more than just the movie. It was also a live horror show at the theater that day. We sat through the movie, and then some guy got up on stage and began to introduce the live portion of the afternoon. They had rigged up some of the seats with some kind of vibrating device, and he explained how some of us might get shocked. And then he said, during the course of the presentation, some of us might find someone mysteriously and suddenly sitting next to us. Well, that was enough for me. I turned to Mike and said, you, you want to go? He nodded, yeah, the fear sweat already starting to beat up on his forehead. Well, we exited the theater before the live carnage began. And as we made our way into the bright sunshine of a summer afternoon, I felt the fear roll off me, only to be replaced by a little embarrassment and anger. The admission price for that afternoon of horror was a dollar apiece, a whole dollar which was twice as much as a ticket for a normal movie. We'd had to beg that two bucks from my dad, and I was suddenly guilty that we hadn't gotten his money's worth out of the afternoon. Now, fear can be fun, even funny, provided you're the one causing it and not the one experiencing it. My dad loved to scare people, especially his sisters, my aunts, Dolores, and Margaret. He had a huge collection of lifelike rubber snakes that he would leave on their pillows or under the covers of the bed or, or on the toilet seat when they'd spend the night. He once hung a chicken foot from a light pull cord when they were younger. They still talk about that one at family get-togethers. He would go to elaborate lengths to scare them. Aunt Margaret spent the night once and wound up sleeping on the couch. Well, the couch was below the railing of the staircase. And after Margaret had fallen asleep, my dad weaved the vacuum cleaner hose through the banister and up the stairs, leaving one end dangling just inches above Margaret's head. And then he moaned into the other end. Margaret. Margaret. You know, now that I think about it, that may have been the last time she spent the night at our house. 
But fear can also be serious, even debilitating. There are a number of definitions for the word fear. As a noun, it's defined as a distressing emotion aroused by impending danger, evil, or pain. Whether the threat is real or imagined, the feeling or condition of being afraid or a specific instance of or propensity for such a feeling, an abnormal fear of heights, concern or anxiety, solicitude, a fear for someone's safety, reverential awe, especially toward God, or something that causes a feeling of dread or apprehension, something a person is afraid of. Cancer is a common fear. As a verb, it's defined to regard with fear, be afraid of, to have reverential awe of, or to consider or anticipate something unpleasant with a feeling of dread or alarm. A few years ago, I was having trouble swallowing. It felt like food was getting stuck in my throat. It got so bad one evening, I had a panic attack. Then I began to feel like there was something lodged in there all the time. I was afraid to eat anything solid. Even applesauce and tomato soup were, I felt at least, too thick to go down. So for about three days, I lived on clear broth, water, and coffee until I could get in to see the doctor. Well, they did a procedure on my throat, an endoscopy, and while they were in there, for good measure, they stretched out my esophagus a little. Turns out I had acid reflux that had damaged the lining of my esophagus, and that feeling of something lodged in my throat was a pretty common symptom of it. But those few weeks that led up to that procedure were an experience in a sense of growing fear. Fear can seemingly take control of some people's lives. When it reaches that level, fear is referred to as a phobia or an exaggerated, usually inexplicable and illogical fear of a particular object, class of objects, or situation. There are three main categories of phobias. There are specific phobias, which involve an irrational, persistent fear of a specific object or situation that's out of proportion to the actual risk. There are social phobias, which involve a combination of excessive self-consciousness and a fear of public scrutiny or humiliation in common societal situations. And there are fear of open spaces or agoraphobia, the fear of an actual or anticipated situation caused by fearing no easy means of escape or help if intense anxiety develops. Most people with this develop it after having one or more panic attacks, causing them to fear another attack and avoid the place where it occurred. Psychologists have categorized as many as 500 phobias. Each letter of the English alphabet has at least two phobias associated with it. There are about 50 that begin with the letter A. Some of them may seem a little silly to those of us who don't have them. There's ablutophobia, the fear of bathing. Chorophobia, the fear of dancing, logophobia, the fear of words, geriascophobia, the fear of getting old, ecclesiophobia, the fear of church, uranophobia, the fear of heaven, and then there's phobiophobia, the fear of having a phobia. I don't think the fear that Elisha's servant or Peter experienced in our two passages qualify as phobias, but they were real fears nonetheless. There's a lot of mention of fear in the Bible. Now, I've heard it said that the Bible contains 365 instances of the phrase, fear not, in one form or another, one for each day of the year. But that's not true. In the original language of the Bible, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, the word or words that are often translated as fear 
occur 314 times. And some of those have been translated as terrible, dreadful, reverence, or terrible acts. The term fear not and its variants, do not fear and do not be afraid, appear a different amount of times based on the English translation you're using. In the King James, they appear 103 times. 129 times in the New King James. The Revised Standard Version has them 139 times, and they show up in the American Standard Bible 148 times, and 127 times in the New American Standard Bible. The New International Version contains 66 occurrences of those phrases, and the English Standard Version has them 137 times. You know, it seems like an awful lot of those references concern the supernatural. Almost every time an angel appears to a human in the Bible, the first thing he says is, fear not. Zacharias, Joseph, Mary, the shepherds, angels appeared to all of them. But before the angels could deliver their messages, they had to calm the people down a little bit, tell them, do not be afraid. You have to think the angels would get a little bit tired of that. Well, why do you suppose that is, that the first reaction people have to a confrontation with the heavenly is fear? Maybe sin has something to do with that. In Genesis 3, we read that after they'd eaten from the forbidden tree, Adam and Eve heard God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid. When God called Adam, Adam responded, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Now, both of these passages deal with fear and the supernatural, but in both of them, the supernatural part of the story doesn't cause the fear. On the contrary, it's something very much of this world that causes the sphere, and it's the intervention of the heavenly that dispels the fear. Elisha's servant wakes up one day to find the city surrounded by an army, horses, chariots, soldiers, and they were there to capture Elisha. And the servant figured if the army captured Elisha, they'd take him as well. So he was afraid. Pretty normal, rational reaction. Probably not much different from the reaction we'd have in a similar circumstance. Someone gets upset with us, is antagonistic towards us, so much so that they're about to do serious bodily injury to us. I might be a little afraid facing something like that, especially facing superior numbers like Elisha's servant was. Or thought he was. Aram was at war with Israel, but every time the king of Aram would set up camp and plan to attack, the king of Israel knew about it, was able to avoid the army of Aram or warn the city that Aram was going to attack. God was telling Elisha the king of Aram's plans, and Elisha was passing on that information to the king of Israel. It got to the point that the king of Aram thought there must be a spy among his officers, but the officers knew somehow that it was Elisha. So the king sent his army to capture Elisha. Now, Elisha's servant must have known all this, and he probably knew how angry the king of Aram was and the fate that awaited both himself and Elisha if the king captured them. What he didn't know was that he and Elisha were not alone in that city. But that's the way it is with us so often. We face some sort of trial or hardship and feel that we're all alone. Maybe we even feel a little sorry for ourselves, thinking that no one else could possibly understand what it is we're facing. But we're not alone. Never. Ever. Jesus has promised that. Hebrews 13.5 tells us, For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. And Psalm 94.14 reads, For the Lord will not abandon his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. And there are dozens of other verses that promise the same. Elisha knew that. Now, the scripture doesn't tell us what Elisha saw, but he knew God was protecting him. 
whether he saw that protection or not. So he told his servant, do not be afraid, for there are more with us than there are with them. And then he prayed that God would open his servant's eyes, that he may see. Oh, and what a sight. The mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. You think you're alone wherever you may be listening to this? Look around. Maybe you can't see it, but my guess is that there are more than a couple of angels there with you, and the Lord himself is present, isn't he? Didn't Jesus also promise that for where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst? You are never alone. You never have to face your trials, hardships, battles alone. Now, that doesn't mean you won't have to go through them, but you never have to go through them on your own. And this brings us to our second passage. Jesus had just finished feeding the 5,000. Actually, that's a little bit of an understatement. The scriptural account says those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So it was 5,000 plus whom Jesus fed from the five loaves of bread and two fish. Immediately after this, Jesus sent the disciples on ahead in a boat while he dismissed the crowds and went up to the mountain to pray. He prayed most of the night. Now, the disciples ran into a contrary wind and were stuck far from land. And early in the morning, after being out on the water all night, they saw what they thought was a ghost walking toward them on the water, and they were terrified. And what did Jesus tell them? Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. There's that phrase again. Now, I'm not sure what Peter was thinking, but he said to Jesus, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. So Peter hopped out of the boat and started walking toward Jesus on the water. And for a little bit, old Peter was doing pretty well, strolling along there out on the waves. But then the natural pushed its way back into Peter's consciousness. When he noticed the wind, he became frightened. And this is where we can start to see ourselves in the story. We're following Jesus. We're focused on him, watching him, listening to his voice. And then we start to notice something is a bit amiss with our circumstance. We take our eyes off Jesus, and we begin to sink. Now, that's not to say that our circumstances aren't real. Our trials, hardships, our pain and suffering, oh, they're real. Just like that wind was real, that it kept the disciples from making land all night long. But the wind was already blowing when Peter got out of the boat. This was not a new development. And our various, what does Paul call them in 2 Corinthians 4? momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Our momentary light afflictions are nothing new. We had them. We carried them, fretted over them, let them at times beat us down before we started following Jesus. They are not new developments. And yet too often, We allow them to distract us from keeping our eyes fixed firmly on Jesus. Sickness, unemployment, relationship problems, money troubles, pandemics, all very real. Many very serious. But if we fix our attention on them, we, like Peter, will begin to sink. All we need to do is, like Peter, cry out, Lord, save me. And what will the Lord do? Well, for Peter, he reached out his hand and caught him. We've already said that the Lord will never leave us, never fail us, never forsake us. Sure, sometimes we'll have to face down an army of angry Arameans or slog through the surf and strong winds, but we never have to do it alone. And we never need worrying about sinking 
if we keep our eyes fixed on him. During those weeks when I was dealing with my throat and panic issues, the nights were the hardest part. I don't know why. Maybe I was afraid that if I laid my head down or fell asleep, I wouldn't be able to keep from choking. That was a terrible stretch of time, but I found comfort and relief in the scriptures. Psalm 91.5 became a favorite verse. You will not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day. And Isaiah 41.10, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. There are times when fear is going to come knocking. There are situations and hardships that we'll face that may seem insurmountable. But if we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, he will never let us sink. I keep coming back to that passage in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 17 and 18. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. And then verse 18 contains the real payoff, the conclusion for this study. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And that's a wrap on another episode of Life with Jerry Williams, the podcast. Again, thank you so much for listening. Please do subscribe, leave a review, a five-star rating. I will put a link to my website, jerrywilliamsmedia.com, in the show notes of this episode of the podcast. A lot of other cool stuff there, some reviews, and just a lot of fun stuff on the website. Next time, it'll be the podcast right before Easter. My podcast comes out every Monday, so this will be just shy of a week before Easter. So we're going to kind of look at three words that are crucial to the Easter story. That's coming up next time on Life with Jerry Williams.